News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, here's what I learned from the Cullen Commission on Money Laundering this week, that questions about the source of cash for high rollers and BC casinos were bad for business. That's actually what two casino executives told the uh, BCLC chief operating officer back in 2015. It's been another day of testimony like that makes you shake your head. Joining us now is Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Timmy. So this goes to, again, what we have suspected for a long time, that at the highest levels, would you say they just didn't want to look at money laundering? That's right. Uh, we, we're really starting to see the commission lawyers start to uh, paint the details of their case. And that is what I'm hearing is they're alleging that at the highest levels of casinos and BC Lottery Corporation, really, uh, there was a pushback against investigating money laundering. We heard uh, this week from Brad Demera. He's the chief operating officer of the BC Lottery Corporation. He was read emails in which Great Canadian Gaming CEO, that's Rod Baker, uh, had called the Lottery Corporation's uh, CEO, Jim Lightbody, complaining when these interviews against a, a small number of VIPs that were connected to Asian organized crime and drug trafficking schemes. When these interviews were done by the Lottery Corp, Mr. Baker allegedly was very angry and complained. It was bad for business. We heard also uh, in evidence read to Mr. Demeray that Michael Graydon, who was uh, an executive for the Vancouver Edgewater Casino, complained. Mr. Demeray emailed back we're, we're acutely aware of the revenue implications for both of us, meaning the casinos and the Lottery Corporation. And uh, so what the evidence suggested was there was pressure from the top of the Lottery Corporation to keep revenue flowing. Uh, the Lottery Corporation executives had been warned for years by their own staff and BC's regulator that it was a known scheme, that uh, this massive amounts of cash were being loaned to foreign high rollers, from drug gangs in BC, and it was being paid back in China. And so to boil down the evidence we're hearing this week, uh, the Lottery Corporation came up with alternative facts or theories to explain these massive amounts of cash flowing in, despite many reports uh, they were getting that were saying this is large-scale drug money laundering. What were some of those alternative facts or theories then? Mr. Demeray, I, I would say, really got grilled yesterday by government lawyers that said as soon as he was hired in 2013, he pushed back on the BC Gaming Enforcement Branch's call to really reduce these, these flood of 20s. He was saying uh, Chinese uh, high rollers are flying from China into Vancouver with uh, massive loads of Canadian dollars. Now, this explanation was laughed at by the gaming regulator because they said uh, China, uh, Chinese, uh, it's almost unheard of to have Canadian dollars in China. This wasn't happening. Yeah. Another theory was this was legitimate underground banking, Mr. Demerick claimed. And we heard that he took that in a high-level briefing to BC's government and said this, all these $20 in elastic bands bundled in the way that others see drug, drug money, it, it, no, it's underground banking. And uh, again, the government lawyer really ridiculed that explanation. And we heard that the B.C. government deputy minister told Mr. Demery, well, wouldn't, couldn't that be a breach of Canada's Banking Act? Uh, 
He said, yes, maybe, but took no action. Okay, that's the thing that gets me. If they keep using the term underground banking, it's underground for a reason, which means it's illegal. It's, it's underground for a reason. There's a technicality there where uh, it, it, it should be illegal, in my view. But uh, if, if, if there's sort of ancient ways of banking where perhaps a family member in, let's say, the Middle East and a family member in Toronto wants to uh, make a loan on one side uh, and not transfer money by wire, if they report that money to uh, the CRA and if it's not money laundering, it could be legal in certain circumstances. But it's beyond the gray area. And in my view, almost always organized crime is involved in these transactions. So uh, I, I would say that is an area that the, the Cullen Commission lawyers will have to dig into. And Austin Cullen, the commissioner, I, I think will probably be in a position to make a very uh, uh, perhaps precedent setting statement on that very question. Sam, does it sound to you like willful blindness on the part of people at the top here? Because given the way they've responded to some of these tough questions this week, it certainly seems that way. There, well, we can, tell, we can say this, Simi. There are documents that say that the lottery court managers and the casino managers are being accused of willful blindness, in quotes. So there are some people that were on the inside, whistleblowers or police detectives, that were saying this is willful blindness. Uh, you know, I've been researching this for years. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's enough evidence to say it's willful blindness. And in, I, I think we've heard evidence where people that are in a position of stopping uh, potential drug money from coming into casinos are not only looking the other way, in my view, they're making up alternative facts and theories to justify the money. So the question could be, is that some sort of negligence or omission or dereliction of duty. But that's a, that's something for Austin Cullen to, to come to a decision on. And so when are we going to hear from the government? Because clearly at the people in charge at the time at the government, they would have, the buck would have stopped with them. There, we're going to hear uh, uh, the former de- uh, the minister responsible at part of the time in question, uh, Mike Dion, former BC Liberal Minister of Finance, has been uh, mentioned a, lo- a lot in the past few days. I would think we may hear from him. He will be questioned on on a directive he gave to the casinos that said, you cannot let uh, suspicious cash come in without determining the source of funds. We have heard that Jim Lightbody uh, took that as a direction, really, uh, to keep doing what he was doing, which was not do what he was directed. So I can't see how we're not going to hear from Mr. Dion on what he what he really meant. Uh, we, we've already heard that we'll hear from Minister, former Minister Rich Coleman, who, of course, has faced a number of uh, suggestions or allegations that he was warned of this large-scale money laundering and did nothing. Okay, more to come from that. Sam, thank you so much. Thanks, Cindy. Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist, with the update today from the uh, Cullen uh, Commission into money laundering. It just, again, highest levels here. We're talking CEOs, people in charge of things like the BC Lottery Corporation or Great Canadian Gaming turning away uh, from the obvious of what was happening in their casinos and in their gaming places. And that is, they did what they weren't concerned about people bringing in duffel bags full of cash, as Sam pointed out, bricks wrapped of 20s, you know, wrapped with a rubber band. No, they figured there was some other legitimate explanation for that. Kind of defies belief, doesn't it? More to come, and Sam will have complete coverage. And for more, you can check out globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. 
So the Prime Minister's announcement that domestic vaccine production is on the horizon and ramping up seems like good news, right? But it's not going to happen anytime soon. Globe and Mail reporter Marika Walsh pressed public officials on the timing of this yesterday. So let's talk to her about when all of this is supposed to happen. Marika, thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Thanks so much for having me. So what did you discover about the timeline of this domestic vaccine production? (laughs) The devil's always in the details, and sometimes the simplest questions lead to the darndest answers, I think. Um, So what we discovered yesterday was kind of a rolling timeline with the Prime Minister first telling us that production would start at the end of the summer for this vaccine facility in Montreal. Then uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, who's the industry minister, said that it would actually be the end of the year. And then the National Research Council, which is responsible for this facility, told us in a statement late yesterday that, you know, the the initial um, testing of the production lines would be in December, and then shortly after the mass production would start. So, it's looking like this vaccine manufacturing plant could actually only start production a year from now. That sounds like a lot of different ways that you had to ask the question and a lot of different people just to get the answer. <laughs> Welcome to life as a political reporter. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it. Okay, so then it's not as good news, I think, as a lot of people thought. What do they have to do? Like, why is it going to take so long? So I think the why Um, the question of why it has taken Canada so long to build up domestic vaccine capacity is a question that has not yet been fully answered, I think is fair to say. For example, the United Kingdom, which also had really low manufacturing capacity at the beginning of this pandemic, has already really ramped that up and is expecting, for example, one facility to be online this summer with the ability to produce multiple different types of vaccines. And so it really is a question for the government that remains unanswered. However, I do think it's important to note that experts who have been in this field, who study this field, say that while this this domestic vaccine production announcement that came yesterday, while it doesn't help the immediate vaccine crunch that we're in and the uncertainty around international supply lines, it is important for the long term for Canada, both because We don't know how long immunity from the vaccines for COVID will last. You know, will this be something like a flu shot where we need to get a booster every year? Most people think, well, this won't be like the polio shot that you only get once and then you're good to go. So while it won't help the immediate crunch, they do believe that it will serve a purpose for the long run. And so it's really just a question of cutting through some of the political spin and the talking points to understand what the impact has been. Okay, so if that's the case, then we're going to need more than just one production facility in Quebec, right? Uh, that uh, You know, it, it depends on what happens, how Canada decides to move forward with this. So the production facility in Quebec is going to be the first coming online from the announcement that the prime minister made. But there is another facility in B.C. that the government says would come online in 2023. So that's significantly further down the road. But they are looking at multiple facilities. Another one at the University of Saskatchewan but would would be another example that should come online next year. So they are... Um, focusing on a few different options within Canada, which 
people say is an important move as long as it's a sustained approach that we don't, you know, again, in five years, lose interest in domestic vaccine manufacturing. However, to your point of, you know, whether whether this one Montreal facility will be enough for next year's vaccines, it's important to remember that Canada still has all of these international agreements with massive, um, massive pharmaceutical giants to deliver a lot of vaccines to Canada. Canada has bought more than 200 million vaccines for a population of 38 million. And so as those vaccines come online, as they are approved by Health Canada, the government is expecting the very lumpy start to smooth out. The question is, how quickly does that come? And and does it come too late as we see this expansion of the new variants in Canada? All right. Well, Marika, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. Have a good day. It's Marika Walsh, Globe and Mail reporter who really had to work to nail down the timeline yesterday. She's the one who asked that all-important question at Prime Minister Trudeau's press conference. Uh, when is this domestic vaccine production going to be available to Canadians? And that's when things kind of turned because we found out, well, not until much later in the year. And you would think, as Marika had pointed out, that all of the other vaccines that we have ordered from these big pharmaceutical companies would hopefully have shown up by then. But again, the next couple of weeks, we know we have a shortage of the Pfizer and to a certain extent, not as great as the Pfizer, but also the Moderna vaccine too. But still waiting to find out if the AstraZeneca a vaccine is going to be approved here in Canada. We haven't had any update on that for some time. It is in front of Health Canada. And so again, update expected on that. This is Mornings with Simi. You may have seen this footage on the internet yesterday. It seems like bad news for SpaceX, right? Their prototype Mars rocket exploded upon landing yesterday. And this is a busy couple of days for that company because they're also trying to get two more rockets up tomorrow morning. This is part of their Starlink satellite internet project. So joining us with more on this is Greg Pallone, a Space Coast reporter for Spectrum News 13 in Brevard County, Florida. Greg, thank you for being here. Good morning, Sammy. Thanks for having me. Well, was this a setback? Because it sure looks like a setback. You know, the, the one thing that uh, people need to be kind of cognizant of, this was a test. Uh, this was a test flight, a test launch. Um, you know, when you're an engineer type in the space industry, whether it's for NASA or commercial space, you almost want something to happen. You want trouble to happen. That way you can troubleshoot. And so, uh, again, this was not a, uh, a crude flight. Um, this was a test of their Starship. Uh, number nine. Um, and they, yes, it did launch successfully. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. It went, uh, you know, 10 kilometers uh, in, into the sky, uh, which is about six miles. It did that. It If you've seen the footage, it rolled appropriately once all the engines were intentionally stopped uh, and shut down and came down. Um, unfortunately, right there at the end, it was supposed to land right back on the pad where it had launched just minutes before, but uh, the engines just did not fire correctly to slow it down. And yes, you saw that large explosion. Um, is it a is it a setback? Not necessarily. Uh, you know, SpaceX, anyone uh, in, in the commercial space industry who's launching rockets, uh, they'll tell you right away, uh, not that they want something to happen, they want it bad, but they would rather it happen now when there's no people on board. And indeed, you know, we had a great explosion yesterday once it launched, but they're going to go and try, try again as they do. Yeah, that's right. So what's going on this week? It sounds like a significant week. Uh, they are, you know, SpaceX is, uh, you know, I, I like to call them the assembly line of launch companies. 
Um, this is indeed an assembly line. Um, we're going to be doing something that might set a record. Uh, back in the in the 50s when rockets were in their infancy and started launching from here on the Space Coast at the Cape Canaveral, now known as the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, and then later the Kennedy Space Center, uh, we had these smaller rockets launching as they were just doing tests, trying to get them going. Uh, they would launch very frequently. Um, but now that we're in the commercial space age, uh, this, this indeed may set a record. If they can launch... Um, their latest Starlink mission on their Falcon 9 rocket at 1.19 a.m. Eastern time, which uh, I'll be out there for that. Uh, and then if that is successful, uh, they're, they're going to try again from now that would be from their their pad at 39A at the Kennedy Space Center, which is the former uh, Saturn rocket pad, the Apollo program, the shuttle program. They have another rocket lined up next door, I like to say, at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station at their pad 40. Uh, if they can successfully launch the one at 119 a.m. this morning, then turn around another SpaceX team launching from pad 40 um, at 536 a.m. That'll be two rocket launches in a matter of hours from the Space Coast. In addition to the launches, we're also talking about the landing of the rocket's first stage booster. They have two of their drone ships positioned out in the Atlantic Ocean to to uh, have those landings. If you've seen those boosters come back, very similar to what the Starship tried to do yesterday, they do land on land back at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station uh, at their landing zone, but these are two drone ships, mm-hmm. uh, as we call them, the autonomous drone ships that will be positioned out there to receive those boosters. And as we talked about, uh, the boosters themselves come back. Um, they're able to be refurbished and used again many, many times in spaceflight uh, for their missions, and that cuts down the cost of spaceflight by millions upon millions of dollars instead of just letting them fall back in the Atlantic Ocean and, and sink to the uh, to the bottom. That's amazing. How much of this is done in cooperation with NASA, or are they just kind of renting space from NASA? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, they're, they're, they're leasing, if you will, uh, Pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center from NASA. The, a few years ago, they signed a 20-year lease, and that kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, proved their commitment to launching rockets from there. Um, and so it is essentially their pad. Um, they do have uh, different customers, and it's just like any, uh, any service. Um, you know, SpaceX is a, a launch provider, um, and they have different customers. NASA is a customer. Um, they have launched uh, on the two uh, crewed missions uh, over the last few months, which we finally saw uh, humans flying again from on American rockets, on American soil, uh, you know, on, on these missions to the International Space Station. We haven't seen that mm-hmm. uh, since the shuttle program retired back in 2011. And uh, the, the, the final shuttle, Shuttle Atlantis, landed at the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, they had the, the, the several years uh, of not being able to fly our own people uh, up to space, up to the International Space Station, had to be reliant upon Russia uh, to fly our astronauts uh, on Soyuz rockets for $70, $80 million a seat. So you can see the, the cost effectiveness of being able to fly. Uh, but now that we're getting this cadence again, um, there's a, a, a unit out here with the Space Force. Um, mm-hmm. It's called the 45th Space Wing. They're the ones who control the eastern range out here. And once they get approval from them, just like with this, they just got approval to launch these two rockets from two different pads hours apart. I mean, uh, the, the cadence of these launches uh, is incredible. Um, and they have uh, the 45th Space Wing has a, a, a mission, if you will, yep. called the Drive to 48 uh, to launch 48 rockets from here, from the Space Coast, within a calendar year. So wow. uh, we're looking at it could be 50, we could be looking at 50 rocket launches from this area. Now you mentioned just briefly um, about the customers. You know, NASA is a customer. They also have other um, uh, like Sirius XM launched a, a satellite for them yep. uh, not too long ago. Unfortunately, that. 
satellite did not uh, is not success. It was not a successfully um, started up, if you will, out in orbit. So they'll have to do that again okay. and figure that one out. But they do have different customers, and uh, again, it's 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 just like a, a private company doing business yeah. with, with NASA, the government, and then other companies. Fascinating stuff, Greg. Thank you so much. You are welcome. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, polls have told us that Canadians overwhelmingly support the idea of travel restrictions, severely limiting who is allowed into the country. So do we know, though, how many cases of COVID-19 are actually linked to travel? Sounds like there's some information missing on that. Uh, Now let's talk to Dr. Anne-Marie Nickel, who's an associate professor in health sciences at Simon Fraser University. Uh, She has co-written a piece about this in the Toronto Star newspaper. Uh, Dr. Nickel, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So have we not been tracking that data? Uh, We, uh, that's an interesting question um, with a complicated answer. Um, we are tracking the number of people who are coming into the country. We aren't always necessarily tracking whether or not those people may or may not have COVID, though. That seems like a big gap, though, doesn't it? It is. And there are statistics that suggest that only a few travelers, like a small proportion of people who are coming into the country to test positive. But there's actually a significant number of people who are arriving in Canada. um, And that actually can translate to a fair number of people overall. Okay, so what do you think we should be doing? Uh, I welcome the government's newer measures, and that's in light of the fact that we know that the virus is adapting and evolving. And that means that the travel cases and the potential for some of these new variants to arrive in Canada um, is is serious. And we've already seen what's called community-level spread of the variants, both in British Columbia and in Ontario. So once those new strains uh, arrive, they have a risk of taking over um, and they are more infectious. So this is a problem that we're facing at this moment in time. Do you think it's a bit of a tipping point? In other countries where these new variants have become the dominant version of the virus, it it is critical. You look at the UK, they got overwhelmed really quickly and we really can't afford to take that risk at this point in time. So it, they've started to do this now. Do we lag behind what other countries are doing? Well, we see clearly that other countries who restricted travel in the beginning have fared significantly better than we have here in Canada. And so, you know, this is a bit of a, a patchwork uh, restrictions at the moment, cutting off countries, for example, in the Caribbean and Mexico, when we know that the virus is circulating globally. Uh, we know that the variants of concern are in countries like the United States um, and Brazil and South America. And, you know, the virus doesn't just stay where it emerges. It's also able to travel around to, to different countries. So, you know, looking at perhaps tighter restrictions for people wanting to travel to other places around the globe could be a good next step. Is it left up to the provinces? I know like contact tracing is a huge issue at, at times. I think it's kind of fallen by the wayside, hasn't it? Well, they, for international travelers, they are supposed to register with the government and deal with the Arrive Can app and be um, followed by the federal system. But provincially, we are checking for the variants to see if they are here. And um, if people have been listening to Dr. Barney's updates, we know 
that there are, you know, that the virus variants are here already and they may be spreading in our community. And these are not the only ones. We expect that there will be new variants of concern. So looking seriously at importing new cases and trying to prevent that is going to be an important new strategy for us going forward. Does it concern you then when you hear about cases where they don't know where that variant came from? Yes, that's that's the community spread part. And if those cases aren't linked to a known travel source, that means that somebody has brought that case in, that it's escaped our detection, and then it's moving through the community. Right. Now, we're also hearing in the last couple of days of California, like noticing that they've got some variants, too. You were just saying that we expect more of these. Yes, the United States, they've acknowledged that at least 12 states have the variants of concern. There's other variants under investigation. And we don't know where they're going to crop up. We, and, and so that's part of why being a lot more vigilant about the people that are coming into the country is really important because we, we don't know, we don't have all the information yet. We also don't really know what the implications of these variants are for things like vaccination. I was thinking like in a place like California or other places in the U.S., there's a lot of Canadians probably down there, a lot of snowbirds who decided to do this anyway. It is people who are who had planned travel to going forward. Um, and we know that last year in British Columbia, we, we were really quite proud of the fact that in the beginning, there wasn't a lot of circulating virus here. And a lot of people pointed to spring break and the fact that many people you know really had to cancel plans. I, I had to. I'm sure I'm not alone. Many people had to cancel much anticipated spring break plans. And but that helped. And we didn't see the kinds of cases that they did in other parts of the country. So, you know, being thoughtful about what spring break looks like for people is incredibly important because we don't want to be back where we started a year ago with yet another fresh version of this virus that's going to be worse for us. Right. Do you think there's also a bit of a misperception, Dr. Niccolo, from people when they say, oh, yeah, we've got to have these travel restrictions because that's how we're going to protect ourselves? Yeah, travel restrictions are only one of a fleet of measures. And unfortunately, with the community spread of the virus, we really need to be paying attention and adhering to what we know are the public health measures that work. So physical distancing, wearing masks, you know, particularly important, not gathering. These strategies are even more important now that these more infectious versions might be here. So people don't take anything for granted, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, we know the virus didn't, the virus came here from somewhere else. So we want to prevent new versions of it from coming here from somewhere else as well. Okay. Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. That's Dr. Anne-Marie Nickel, an associate professor in health sciences at Simon Fraser University. She has co-written a piece in the Toronto Star newspaper having to do with the new travel restrictions that the federal government has introduced. Like Those restrictions require a negative COVID test and hotel quarantines upon arrival. But she's saying we're not going far enough in terms of tracking and tracing each of those people who are traveling to make sure that we know exactly that, you know, where they're coming into contact because community spread is the big concern with these variants. The California issue just came up in the last couple of days where they're acknowledging now, health officials are in California, that they've got a bunch of variants too circulating in their population 
Not a huge surprise, I guess, when you consider how many cases that they have had in California. They had to go into a statewide lockdown in some cases to, you know, get things under control. Probably argue that it's still not fully under control there either. Uh, So, yeah, just more reasons for us to be careful. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you've been cooking more during the pandemic over the last year, you would certainly not be alone. Perhaps you're just going to restaurants less or, you know, you're working from home, so you don't need to take that lunch or go have lunch with coworkers or something like that. Well, the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University has released a new report on food literacy, and they surveyed more than 10,000 Canadians right across the country on all sorts of questions regarding how we're consuming food, essentially, during the last year. So, Professor Sylvain Charlebois is here to break it all down for us. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. So what did you find? Why are we eating more from home? <laughs> because we don't have a choice. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's. I think it's obvious that we are cooking more generally. But um, when, we, when we think about food literacy, I mean, it's essentially about food knowledge, how... Uh, Food knowledge is influencing our food choices. And so, uh, yes, uh, we do cook more, but are people actually making different decisions? Are they learning new recipes? Are they using new ingredients? Uh, Where do they get their information uh, from? Those are the types of questions we ask Canadians, uh, over 10,000 Canadians in the last uh, few weeks. And we so we try to understand if the pandemic uh, itself has made Canada more food literate. Now, one of the interesting questions that you asked people was whether or not they had learned a new recipe during the yes. pandemic. Now, I would have thought that that number would be really high because, like, of course, I thought that's what people have been doing, but apparently not. No, we were expecting a very different number, but unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, so, so basically, the uh, the the ratio went from six point two to six point seven in Canada in terms of how many recipes Canadians know on average. So, six point two to six point seven. So, uh, uh, an increase of of point five, and and. And I think it's a good metric to understand if people are comfortable in the kitchen, if they're learning new recipes. And what I mean by recipes for our team, it meant at least three ingredients and three steps. So it's really an open definition, but boiling an egg is not a recipe. So we wanted to eliminate that. (laughs) Wanted to focus on something a little bit more sophisticated and, of course, something that generates dishes. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's, the average barely change, and uh, we looked also at ingredients. If people have actually used an ingredient for the first time, 48% of Canadians have actually used, again, very low. I was expecting a much higher percentage. Uh, and the top two categories of, of new ingredients are oils and spices, not brown, groundbreaking either. I mean, no. we're not talking about beef or or elk or bison or you know a new produce of some sort they're just flavor enhancing sort of ingredients interesting and also i the other stat that i took a look at was 24 percent of canadians claimed that they had prepared all of the meals that they had consumed in the last year so like 24 percent of people are saying they didn't go out they didn't do takeout at all nothing yeah which That's is amazing uh, 
It's a commitment, uh, and of course, uh, we, we tend to forget that, uh, I mean, some people out there just don't have a choice uh, from a socioeconomic perspective. Uh, food is expensive, and, and cooking is part of their daily lives. Um, the We believe that the ratio is lower uh, without the pandemic. With the pandemic, of course, the more people are at home. But again, numbers are, are much lower than we expected. Uh, we actually were expecting way more people to learn more recipes, use more ingredients, uh, cook more at home. I, I actually think that people do realize that menu management and you know washing dishes and everything else uh, that comes along with cooking is a lot of work. Oh, it is and a lot so of work, yes. It is a lot of work, especially if you have kids at home, they're hungry, time is is important, and so takeout, ordering from restaurants uh, is great. But I, what I do think that our report today points to the potential of meal kits. I, I think meal kits really meal kits, have the yeah. potential to do very, very well. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. Sylvain Charlebois is the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. They have a big report out this morning, 10,000 Canadians they talk to right across the country to talk about food literacy and food habits, essentially. And what they found is Canadians didn't really learn any new recipes or anything during the pandemic, which is really surprising. I thought it would have been the opposite. So did the researchers, but that wasn't the case. Only about 24% of Canadians saying that they had actually done that, learned something new.